There's a, an increasing mindset within the modern church to not focus on the Old Testament, to not really see it as relevant, to just focus on the New Testament, emphasize that uh, to the point of just about ignoring the Old Testament entirely, especially when it comes to these types of gatherings, corporate worship, message. Uh, it's an increasing trend, and it's, it's an unfortunate and alarming trend, not healthy at all, because as Paul says in Romans, what was written in the past, what was written before, was for our instruction today, for our benefit, for our relevance, for our hope. And there's a lot in the Old Testament that applies to us today and to tomorrow and, and every day after. It's, it's timeless in just about every aspect, certainly not some of the details that are specific uh, to culture and context and time, but uh, so much translates directly over into the New Testament. And much of what you see in the New Testament, you wouldn't be able to really understand without the light of the Old Testament shining on it. And there's certainly so much to grab and glean from the Old Testament in our lives, every aspect of our Christian life and our Christian walk. And certainly that applies to prayer, to the area of prayer and the aspect of prayer, the concept of a prayer. And so in this series throughout the summer, we're going to look at the Old Testament at some very practical prayers that are in the pages of the Old Testament, and we're going to seek to apply that to our lives today. In Luke 11, it's recorded that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, just like John's disciples. John the Baptist taught his disciples and instructed them to pray, and Jesus' disciples said, hey, what about us? How about you teach us the same? Show us how to pray. Teach us how we should be praying. And in response, he gives them a similar model prayer to the one that's referred to all the time as the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. They're not the same. It's different occasions, very similar, uh, very small differences, but they are two different occasions. So he gives them a similar model prayer. And those are both great examples. Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, Luke 11, they're great examples of of a model prayer. They certainly show a lot, teach a lot. But we would be missing a lot of really helpful, practical application if we only looked at either of those examples of good biblical prayers. So today, to start off this series, Practical Prayers, as we look at the Old Testament prayers, we're going to start off by talking about the prayer of Abraham. The prayer of Abraham. And it's safe to say that the prayer of Abraham that will be in the passage we look at together in just a second, it's safe to say that this prayer is the first prayer recorded in the Bible. That doesn't mean necessarily it's the first prayer. Of course not. And there's no way of demonstrating that, and, and uh, most likely it wasn't. But it is the first recorded prayer prayer in the Bible. And I think that the fact that this first recorded prayer is a perfect example of intercessory prayer is really significant. Intercessory prayer. That's the prayer that Abraham prayed. So the question then that we need to ask is, what is intercessory prayer? What is it? What is it made of? What's it contain? Well, Pretty simply, intercessory prayer is going before God on behalf of others. It's going before God 
on behalf of others. There's all kinds of different ways we pray, right? We praise through our prayer. We worship through our prayer. We ask requests and give petitions in our prayer. Something that I feel is probably lacking, if we're honest, in our personal prayers is the intercessory prayer. And that should be absolutely constantly part of our of our continued prayer, intercessory prayer, where we go before God, not for ourselves, but on behalf of others, on behalf of others' needs, spiritual, physical, economic, on behalf of others that need to know God. Think about all the people in your little circle that don't know the Savior you know. And certainly you need to be talking about the Savior to them, but you also need to be praying on their behalf that the Holy Spirit will awaken them to salvation. Because it's not about you saying the right thing. It's not even about you pointing them to Scripture. Without the Holy Spirit wakening them to faith, to belief, it won't happen. So you need to be praying, interceding for the Holy Spirit to open the eyes and quicken the hearts of the lost, among other areas of intercession. So intercessory prayer, it's going before God on behalf of others. And we need to make that a regular part of our prayer. And as I said just a second ago, this first recorded prayer in Scripture is a perfect example of intercessory prayer. Genesis chapter 18, that's where we're going to be. Genesis 18, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 33. Genesis 18, 16 through 33. And I will be reading from the CSB translation, just so you're aware of that as you follow along in your copy of God's Word. And as you're making your way there, let me just quickly establish some context because we're picking up in the middle of something. So what's happening? Abraham, Sarah, they're there. They're going through life. Uh, She's childless. They're despairing about that. And then... On the scene comes these three mysterious guests. And and right away, Abraham can see they're not normal. They're not ordinary. One in particular outshines the rest. So he does what is typical of that culture in that context. He he makes them a meal. They come. They they pitch tents. They sit. They fellowship. They have a meal together. Very Middle Eastern to do that. Then the central figure, which is... You find out very quickly this is none other than an appearance of God. And specifically that means it's an appearance of the second person in the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, before Bethlehem, as so often happens. Whenever there is a face-to-face appearance of God in human form in the Old Testament, he reveals himself usually as the angel of the Lord. Not an angel, but the angel of the Lord, capital T, capital A, He speaks with all the authority of God. He commands. He receives worship, something no other angel has done or will ever do. Then in the New Testament, you see a connection, the fact that no one has ever seen God the Father, and yet all kinds of people have seen God. That means it's the Word, Jesus Christ, appearing. And he makes this really bold, bold statement, this bold promise. He says, Sarah will have a son. Abraham will be a father. And through Abraham's child, born to him by Sarah, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Sarah laughs. She's like, yeah, right. Do you know my age? Do you know how old Abraham is? Like, that's going to happen. And, and he says, 
Uh, I mean, she's overhearing this promise to Abraham, and that's when she laughs. And he says, why does Sarah laugh? And she's all embarrassed because she's caught. And she says, oh, I didn't laugh. I, no, I didn't laugh at all. And he says, no, you did. You did laugh. And then he says, I promise you it's going to happen. I'm going to come again in about a year, and you'll have a son at that time. Then, after that, they get up, and they make their way over to look out over the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah are. That's where we pick up. So establishing that context, verse 16, same time they're there still together with Abraham. All the conversations are intertwined. And then we read this, verse 16. The men got up from there where they were eating with Abraham, where that promise was given to them. The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them. Two angels, one of them not just an angel, but rather an appearance of God in in the flesh, Jesus. Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Very customary. Then, verse 17, then the Lord, that's the central person there, the one flanked by the two angels. Then the Lord said, Should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? And here's why he's not going to hide it. Verse 18 and 19 tell us why uh, the Lord is willing to disclose his plans to Abraham. Should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? Verse 18. Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Like he had just said, he had just given that promise. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. So, in other words, on that part, he's saying, I want to show you what I'm about to do. I want you to see this. I want you to witness this and take this to heart and explain and instruct to your children, which you're going to have, how important it is to know God, to follow God, to live for God. I want you to see firsthand what will happen in judgment on those who refuse to know me, to live for me, to follow me, to obey me. I want you to take it to heart. I want you to instruct your children about this. Verse 20, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. And their sin is extremely serious. Which, of course, we know from reading later on in in the passage. It's a pretty familiar story to most, if not all of you. We know that, yes, indeed, the sin is extremely serious and immense. So he says the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. And their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. Really interesting thing to say, don't you think? Really, really interesting statement that's made by the Lord Himself here. Where did the outcry come from? I mean, if Sodom and Gomorrah is as wicked as we know they were, and is as wicked as as warrants a personal visit from God Himself with angels flanking Him for the purpose of judging and destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, 
Where is this outcry against them coming from? Well, it doesn't really tell us, but I would wager that this outcry is coming likely from the victims of the evil that's done within Sodom and Gomorrah. Think of all the abuse, which we see later on in this story, uh, a very just horrible, horrible, uh, grisly example of, of abuse that takes place. The abuse of the, of the innocent victims, the abuse of, of those that are, are mistreated in this horrible, corrupt area. Maybe it's, you know, the angels themselves that are crying out uh, to God. You know, we, we don't know. But the point is, sin is always known. Sin is always known. Sin will always be disclosed. No matter what we do or, or how secret we think it is or it might be to a lot of other people, sin will always come to light. Always. And there will always be an outcry against our sin to God, and He will always take note of it. He will always be aware of it. Second thing to know about this really interesting phrasing here, um, if we're not careful, we can be tempted to think, well, where's God's omniscience here? I mean, he says, there's this outcry that's come up to me. Their sin is immense. It's extremely serious. I'm going to go down to see if what they've done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. And so just taking it at face value to us, to our human ears, it might sound like, well, God doesn't really know what's going on here. He has to find out if, if it's really that bad. Like He doesn't already know that it, the outcry that has come to Him is, is justified, that, that coming down to destroy it is justified, that He has to find out for Himself. But let me just assure you, God's omniscience, His all-knowing aspect of His divine being, did not suddenly disappear. It's very much intact. So why did he say this to Abraham? Why did he he phrase things this way? It's because God, specifically Jesus, I just want to remind you of that, this is Jesus here, pre-Bethlehem, pre-incarnate Jesus, the Son of God. He was making a point to Abraham. This is so important. He was making a point to Abraham that he doesn't do things randomly. And he is not reckless. And isn't that good news this morning? God does not do things randomly. He doesn't act on a whim. And He doesn't do things recklessly. He doesn't do things arbitrarily. He doesn't do things vindictively. You know, it's not like God is just sitting in heaven, wringing His hands, looking at who He can throw bolts of lightning at. He doesn't find amusement and joy and pleasure in dealing out punishment. He's not Zeus or one of the you know, uh, false gods of the Greek pantheon in mythology that were so much like us. Side note, you ever stop to think, like, how could these Greeks, these ancient Greeks and so many others throughout history actually want to worship gods that were so much like them? Interesting to think about that, huh? God's not like that. He's not random. He's not whimsical. He's not self-serving. 
He's not vindictive. And and God is pointing that out here. He's saying, Abraham, I want you to know, I am ordered, I am intentional, I am deliberate, and I am just. So him saying, I'm coming down to see this, he's proving to Abraham that he takes everything very seriously, that he, he does things based on fact, he does things based on perfect evidence, and he's saying, I'm, I'm doing this because it needs to happen. I'm ordered. I'm, I'm fair. I'm right. And I'm just. The other thing he was doing, by saying this to Abraham, saying it this way, having Abraham come with him, showing him Sodom, bringing him into the counsel of his will and all that's about to happen, he was inviting Abraham to be more than just a spectator. He was inviting Abraham not just to stand over this ridge and watch the destruction as it was happening. He was actually giving Abraham the chance to already be the blessing to the nations that he promised him he will be. He was inviting him to intercede. He was inviting him to intercede. Verse 22. We're going to see this play out as we go through the text, the the invitation to be more than a spectator, to intercede for a very wicked nation that needed intercession. Verse 22, the men turned from there, the men being the, the two angels, and went toward Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So you see the scene, don't you? These These angelic beings flanking this one who is kind of angelic, but so much more. I mean, just totally eclipsing their angelic glory. And of course, because He's the Lord Himself. So they go on to Sodom, and the Lord is still standing there with Abraham. And so Abraham, verse 23, stepped forward and said to God, Will you really? Sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What righteous? What could there possibly be righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot. Remember Lot? Now Lot certainly made some bad decisions by inching closer and closer and closer towards Sodom. When Abraham and Lot split up the territory, Abraham graciously said to his nephew, I'm going to let you choose first. You take whatever land you want. I'll take the leftovers. Lot sees Sodom and Gomorrah, the whole valley. He didn't see Sodom necessarily, but he saw the valley around it. And he said, I'm going to take that. And so he goes and he settles. And Scripture tells us that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. And unfortunately, you can read between the lines, he kept inching further and further to the point where he takes up residence in Sodom and even sits in Leadership sits as part of the city council. None of that, though, means, amazingly, that Lot himself ended up doing the same wicked actions. In fact, we're told later in the New Testament that Lot is considered righteous. I don't know how that could happen, but he is. And that's the Word of God. That's, you know, so we need to take it. That he was still considered righteous. And so Abraham is showing concern especially probably not limited to, but especially to Lot and to Lot's family. That's who he's thinking of. So he says to God, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Now begins the intercession itself. 
Verse 24. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Just, just 50. Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? Verse 25. You could not possibly do such a thing. You're not like these pagan gods that are all around me. You're not like the gods I left when I left Ur and I left my family and all that pagan worship. I've come to know you. You're not like that. You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? It's a great question, isn't it? You know, this shows us something just really quick here that I I have to point out. Effective prayer at all, and effective intercessory prayer in particular, requires that we know the one we're praying to. That we know personally, intimately, deeply, the one we're praying to. We need to know some things about him. We need to know his character. We need to know the way his mind works. We need to know his heart. And that needs to inform the way we pray. By praying to God, it means we know who God is. We know how He is. And we're not just trusting that He hears us. That's not what prayer is. It's not limited to that. We're trusting His heart. We're trusting His character. And that's why we pray. We're trusting the character of the one we pray to. And that's what Abraham's doing here. He's saying, I know you now. (laughs) I think that's why you've come down to me. I think that's why we're talking now, because we know one another. I don't, know just, I don't just know about you, I know you. We're told in the New Testament that Abraham did indeed know God. He's called a friend of God. What a statement. All that we could be called that. So, you, won't, you couldn't possibly do this. You couldn't act that unjustly. You're the judge of the whole earth. Won't you do what is just? And John 5.22-24, don't, don't turn there, I'll just read it. But John 5.22-24 adds even further weight to the fact that this is none other than Jesus Himself by zeroing in on that title, the judge of the whole earth. John 5.22, Jesus Himself speaking there, He says this, The Father, in fact, God the Father, judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son so that all people may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's why Paul can confidently say in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the judge of the whole earth, Jesus, took the judgment for sin on Himself and offers us forgiveness and righteousness instead. So here He is, the judge of the whole earth, none other than Jesus that Abraham is before and He's interceding with Him on behalf of Sodom. Just amazing. I mean, isn't God's Word amazing? All the ways it connects. All the way it supports itself. Let's keep going. Verse 26. 
of Genesis 18. The Lord said, in response to that first intercession, if, how about 50? 50 righteous people. Will you spare it if you find 50? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Isn't God's mercy beautiful? Verse 27, then Abraham answered, and I see him stroking his beard a little bit, thinking about it. Hmm, that's going to be a problem. I said 50. I started too high. This is a very wicked place. Then Abraham answered, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, that's a really important attitude and mindset we see from Abraham, which I'll elaborate on in a few minutes. Then Abraham said, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, in other words, I know who you are, I know what you are, I know what I am, I shouldn't even be speaking to you, but I have, so I'll keep going. Verse 28, suppose the 50 righteous that I asked you about lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Verse 29, then he spoke to him again. Suppose 40 are found there? He answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Just don't ever let anybody tell you that the Old Testament picture of God is not one of mercy. Right here and so many other places. He's the same God, folks. The same God. From Genesis to Revelation, He's the same. Verse 30, Then He said, Let my Lord not be angry and I will speak further. He's keeping the right perspective who He is, who God is. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Verse 31, Then He said, Since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. He replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. And then He said, Let my Lord not be angry and I will speak one more time. I've gone from 50 all the way down to what is probably the most realistic number I can think of based on what we're talking about, based on who we're talking about. Suppose 10 are found there. Let's see, there's Lot. There's his children. He's doing some math. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed, and Abraham returned to his place. And we know, most of us, I think, the rest of the story, not even ten people could be found. And so, it was, in fact, destroyed. What this shows us, what this dialogue and even the destruction itself that took place after this, what this shows us. Some, here's where it gets really practical. I mentioned practical prayers. That's the name of the series. And this is our first practical prayer we're looking at. And I think you've already seen some practical aspects of this prayer that it shows us. But I want to zero in on three very specific practical things that we need to take away from this intercession between Abraham and God in this conversation. 
And the first thing I want to point out to you that's, that's so practical and important to understand about God as we pray and as we intercede is that God has to judge, has to judge unrepentant people, but He's never eager to do it. God has to judge unrepentant people, but He's never eager to do it. God is just and holy and righteous, and therefore He has to deal with sin, has to judge it. That's why He sent Jesus to the cross to judge sin, and He did it by judging His Son in the place of the sinner. And if the sinner will turn from their sin and turn to Jesus and receive His atonement on their behalf, then they are forgiven. But if the sinner refuses to do that and remains unrepentant and remains in their sin, then the judgment of God stays on them. No matter how moral they might think themselves to be, no matter how moral they are compared to other people, if they have not turned to Jesus and accepted His sacrifice on their behalf, their sin remains on them and so does the judgment of God for that sin. Because God is just. And He has to judge sin. But He is never eager and He's never glad about it. He's never happy to do it. He's never delighting in judging. We need to keep that in mind. Not only do we see that here in this interaction and intercession from Abraham with him, but elsewhere. Uh, Ezekiel 18. I'm going to just read this to you. Ezekiel 18, 31-32. God speaking... Uh, through his servant Ezekiel, through the prophet Ezekiel, to his people. And he says this, Throw off all the transgressions you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why should you die, house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in anyone's death. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So repent and live. That's the cry of the heart of our God. God has to judge unrepentant people, but He's never eager to do it. And we need to never, ever be eager to see people judged. Certainly, you remember these pictures. Those of you who were uh, blessed with the wisdom of years and remember that firsthand, that time period. Notice how I did that. Danced around. And if you weren't there in that time period, this is so historical. I mean, anybody that's gone through school knows what's surrounding these pictures. I mean, there's that wonderful, amazing picture of John Kennedy Jr. playing there in his father's office underneath the Resolute desk there. What a tender picture that is. That's how intimate and close he was to his father. His father was the president. His father was the president, but he was still daddy. And he was so comfortable that he could play in the Oval Office at the feet of his father. And then tragically, when John F. Kennedy was assassinated at the funeral, as the casket went by, there's little John F. Kennedy Jr., who in that moment in his young life sees and understands that that's not just Daddy, that was the President of the United States. And he salutes. He salutes his father out of respect and out of honor. That is a good illustration of this point, of this statement for us. Prayer is talking with our Heavenly Father. 
But we need to remember, church, we need to remember that our Father is the King of heaven and earth. So don't go to Him in prayer with any sort of cavalier attitude. We can go to Him with confidence. The throne is open to us. Jesus has made the throne room open. The scepter is extended. We can go boldly before the throne of grace. We can go and call the God of the universe, Abba, Daddy. We can do that. We have that amazing, undeserved privilege. But don't ever forget that who we're talking to is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And we need to honor Him as such. As we see here in Abraham's interaction and intercession, in those last few verses, in those statements, he, he said, I, I'm not worthy to speak to you, but I've, I've ventured already to do it. I've been bold enough to speak, so I guess I'll keep going. Please don't be angry as I talk to you. We need to have a healthy fear, even in our close personal relationship with God. Next thing that I, I want to make sure you understand about this prayer and that you glean from it, that you apply uh, to your own prayer life and to your own intercession in your prayer, to intercede for people with God, you need to have God's heart for people. To intercede for people with God, you need to have God's heart for people. Very important. That means you've got to check your ego at the door, as it were. It means you've got to let go of bitterness You've got to let go of resentment, any sort of personal grudge you might be holding on to for people. You can't take that into your intercession with God. can't be part of your prayer or your intercessory. Your intercessory prayer isn't going to be really intercessory prayer, and it's not going to be effective. And, and you know this because maybe you've, you've had people in your life, I, I have, and I'm, I'm getting, guessing that you have, you've had people in your life that have wronged you, that have offended you, that have insulted you, that have hurt you, and you're angry about them, and, and you're, you're bitter towards them. And God does something. He, he brings that to your mind, and He makes you aware of it, and He makes you uncomfortable about it, and He convicts you about your attitude about so-and-so. And he, he urges you, and He leads you to start praying for them. And until you do, you're miserable, aren't you? Until you start praying for the person that you don't want to pray for, you're miserable. He doesn't let you go. And here's the amazing thing that starts to happen. Once you surrender and yield and you start actually praying for the person you don't want to pray for, and you actually do start interceding, all that bitterness starts melting away. Because you can't hate people that you pray for. doesn't happen. You start loving them with the love of Jesus, supernaturally. So, if you really want to start praying for people and interceding for people, you've got to make sure that you have God's heart for people. And you need to pray that happens before you start praying for them. You need to pray, God, I know I need to be praying for so-and-so. I know I need to be praying for this group of people. I know I need to be praying for my family. I know I need to be praying for my town, my region, my nation, the world. But God, I don't have your heart for people. Give me your heart for people so that I can pray for them the way you want me to. And then lastly, we all need constant intercession. Would you agree with that? I would hope you would. We all need constant intercession, and we need to constantly intercede for others. It's a, it's a two-sided 
coin there. You know, we need constant intercession ourselves. I need constant intercession. You need it. We also, though, need to be constantly interceding for other people. And here's the really good news. Even if no one else intercedes for you on earth, even if no other human, no other believer intercedes for you, which, God forbid, I mean, goodness, we need to intercede for one another constantly. I need your intercession for me, and I need to be interceding for you. But even if nobody else does that, we have one who stands in heaven that ever lives to intercede for you and me. Romans eight thirty three through 34 says this, Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also, this is the great, great part, He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Hallelujah. The one who died for us stands very much alive, constantly interceding for you and for me. And as we looked at last week, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us as we pray. There's just no one like our God. All Christians need to be active in intercessory prayer. It's not limited to the select few. All Christians need to be active in intercessory prayer. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 says this, and I'm reading this from the NLT. The Apostle Paul says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Not just the ones you like, not just the ones that it's easy to pray for, the ones you know are praying for you. Pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority. That's hard, right? Especially currently. But it's a command right there. You better be doing it, Christian. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf. Give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. Intercession. 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 Think of all the people... I'm I'm almost done. But I, I leave you with these two thoughts. Think of all the people in your life, throughout your life, that have interceded for you. Think of all the people that have interceded for you personally. Thank God for them. Thank God for them. And secondly... Who are you interceding for? Who are you actively interceding for? Whoever it is, don't stop. Don't give up. While they have breath in their lungs, there is hope for them to come to salvation. Don't give up. With every breath you have, don't stop interceding for them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for all that you are. I thank you for who you have shown yourself to be here in this first recorded prayer in all of Scripture. 
and thank you for choosing of all the things you could have chosen. You chose to make an intercessory prayer, the first prayer recorded. Thank you for your sovereignty in that. And thank you for teaching us and showing us so much from this prayer. May we be like Abraham. May we have such a heart for people, even wicked, wicked people, that others would say there's no hope for. Even for people that we would be tempted to say, wow, there's no point praying for them. They're beyond hope. They're beyond rescue. No. Help us to have Abraham's mindset, Abraham's heart, where we intercede even for one person that might turn to you. Give us the heart for people that you have and that your servant Abraham had. May that mark our prayers. Thank you for being the God who hears, the God who cares, and the God who works. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.